Hello and welcome to the Bedrock Podcast, recording from Dover Air Force Base's Innovation Lab. I'm your host, Alex Griffin, and today I'm joined by a few guests. Uh, one, we've got uh, Lieutenant Colin Jadashik. He's the Chief Technology Officer uh, at the Innovation Lab here at Dover Air Force Base. And uh, also, a special guest is the Air Force's Chief Software Officer, Mr. Nicholas Shalon. Uh, Mr. Shalon, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to go through a couple uh, things here. Uh, we're talking about uh, technology, talking about software, talking about innovation. Um, you know, Mr. Shalon, for all the listeners out there, uh, he is the first uh, Air Force Chief Software Officer that we've had in our Air Force. and brings an amazing amount of civilian and government experience to the seat. Uh, even started his first startup at, at 15, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Mr. Shalon, again, thanks for joining us today. I was hoping you could start off and just tell us a, a, a little bit from your perspective, from your seat, uh, what are some of the bigger projects that the Air Force has working right now? Of course, and thank you for having me. I think it's it's very exciting to see how quickly the Air Force is embracing uh, new software capabilities, cloud, AI, machine learning, deep learning. There is a lot going on, and we have dozens of teams across the Air Force and really across the DoD now uh, moving to DevSecOps. And DevSecOps has been a big focus of mine when I started uh, first at ANS uh, for Miss Lord to push DevSecOps to all of DoD with DoD CIO. And now as a chief software officer, I still very much am the co-lead for the DoD Enterprise DevSecOps Initiative, uh, which is really pushing DevSecOps to uh, about 60 uh, DoD programs, uh, empowering teams across business systems, weapon systems, uh, cyber offense and defense, and really uh, ensuring that those teams can have uh, their existing primes and subs uh, have access to, to DevSecOps. And more importantly, uh, we saved about a hundred years of program time uh, across these programs already within a year. And that's demonstrating the value of automation, uh, baked in security, and uh, uh, really showing the, uh, the benefits of, uh, of DevSecOps at enterprise scale. And so we created two teams, uh, Cloud One, and Platform One, uh, you may have known Cloud One as the former CCE, the Common, common Computing Environment. Mm -hmm. And Cloud One is really a, a Cloud Office team that provides access to uh, Amazon government uh, and Azure, uh, GovClouds, and really brings uh, unclassified workload and secret workload and partnered with, uh, with C2S for the, the classified side, uh, the TS layer, and then uh, fences for, for SAP. And then we, we have Platform One, and Platform One is a DevSecOps team. It's an enterprise uh, service for all of DoD, so we have customers uh, beside uh, the Air Force. And Platform One is about six, seven months old now, and already has the largest DoD programs, uh, including F-35, GBSD, uh, Aegis in the Navy, um, and the Joint AI Center, the Jake, uh, with the UDCIO and many, many others, and uh, really moving uh, those teams into the, the DevSecOps universe with uh, baked-in managed services. And that's really what uh, we've been learning is the uh, the main uh, effort and the time we're spending now is, is bringing these kind of turnkey uh, solutions to the rest of DoD so teams can focus on their uh, mission software and not have to rebuild and reinvent all the base layers uh, to get to their ATO. And more importantly, 
uh, being able to push software directly to the wall fighter. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. So you, you talk about DevSecOps. For just the, the average listener out there, uh, how would you explain what that is to, to just the average person out there? Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a funny uh, term, but it's pretty obvious when you think about it. We're really removing uh, the walls and the silos between all of these different teams: Dev, Development, Security, Sec, and Operation teams uh, with Operations Ops. And that's really uh, critical to be able to move at a pace of relevance. And if we want to compete with other nation states, and really when we think about it, it's really about uh, a lot of automation, uh, removing bottlenecks, uh, trying to automate testing, unit testing, integration testing, OTDT, airworthiness, nuclear surety, as much as we can. It doesn't mean everything will be automated. Obviously, there is a lot of things that cannot be fully automated, or we still very much want to have manual checks in those different processes. But it also means the human can then focus more of its time or her time on what's important in terms of what cannot be automated. And that really streamlines the process, brings what we call the continuous authority to operate, the continuous ATO, and it's a completely different model uh, to accredit the software. It's continuous, so that means we accredit the, the factory, the software uh, team that has this, this kind of uh, a DevSecOps pipeline. We call it a DevSecOps pipeline, which is really what takes the software from the beginning to, to deployment with complete automation. We call that continuous integration, continuous delivery, uh, CICD. And really the, the concept is really to automate the testing gate, the cyber gate, the scans, making sure the code is uh, of quality, uh, passing the, the duty requirements, the STIGs, and all these kind of uh, uh, cyber security uh, related uh, uh, requirements, but also entering the, the testing is automated. Um, so when you deploy, you know exactly how the software is going to behave. We also wanted to make sure we're not getting locked into a cloud provider or to a specific environment so we could be agnostic and run the same software on multiple environments, whether it's a cloud provider, whether it's the on-premise, uh, air-gapped, disconnected uh, edge use case, and have the same workload and the same ability to push software across all these environments. And that's why we, we designed the stack to be agnostic and to make sure we have an abstraction layer that let us uh, deploy the software on any environment, which gives us kind of that DOD-wide reciprocity when it comes to the continuous ATO, so we know that we can trust that the software is going to behave the same, whether it's running on a web system or not. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Sir, so you, you talk a little bit about cloud computing. Uh, I just wanted to ask a, a question, uh, kind of talking about cloud, cloud services. You know, a lot of people just kind of think as cloud as data storage. However, it's more of an on-demand availability of, you know, multiple computer uh, resources. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the Air Force is tapping into its full potential in terms of data analytics, um, you know, predictive maintenance, uh, things, things like that? No, you're spot on, and I think that's the mistake often made at the beginning of, of the cloud. People saw you know, the cloud mostly as uh, a way to have elastic uh, storage and compute, which is, which is certainly true, uh, but that, that's really the, the beginning or the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a cloud. Uh, we call it infrastructure as a service, uh, IaaS, and really that's just you know, compute and, and storage as a service, which obviously brings a ton of uh, 
speed and elasticity and flexibility, which is great. And we certainly won that. Uh, but like you pointed, these uh, two layers on top of that, there's platform as a service and there's uh, software as a service. And of course, there's a bunch of new as a service concepts now on top of that as well uh, to bring AI uh, machine learning capabilities as a service as well. Uh, so like you pointed, there's, uh, there are a ton of different tools and databases and big data um, solutions that there that can provide those services as a managed uh, service on the cloud. Elastic, where you pay for consumption, which is much easier to deploy. One of the big impediments to adopt some of these services is uh, due to the fact of the complexity to get those accredited on classified clouds. And that's obviously a problem uh, because most of the meaningful work uh, which we could do using these principles and capabilities would obviously go very quickly to the classified side. And by definition, what I don't want is have a different stack, uh, unclassified versus classified, because you just get behind on the classified side and you have drifts and then you have the issues with accreditation and flexibility. And so what we ended up doing to solve that problem is look at all these different services and we use the concept of containers. And a container is very much like a shipping container. You put a, a piece of software in it and it's immutable and you can ship it. And um, we can accredit containers duty wide all the way to, to SAP. And so the platform one team is responsible for accrediting all of the DoD containers. So instead of using uh, some of these software capabilities as a service on unclassified clouds, which will be limited to uh, unclassified workload and data, we can take the same capability, put it into a container, and now bring it to all of the classification levels. And so we benefit still from the elasticity of the cloud providers that are on the classified side as well, uh, but we bring the logic and automation and the platform with us. And that's empowering the teams to have the same stack across all classification levels. Interesting. So, uh, you know, these days, a large portion of our forces kind of found themselves, you know, working from home in this new normal or new abnormal, um, whatever phrase you want to use. And a big part of that is, is teleworking. And so from your perspective, what uh, kind of from the software development or the infrastructure development, you know, what's, what's the future of that look like for us? Yeah, so I've been very impressed by the teams and their ability to uh, to to shift entirely their um, their mindset. Right, it's the culture shift when it comes to uh, uh, moving to mostly ninety nine percent on premise uh, or face to face meetings with uh, teleworking, and it's obviously not an easy uh, shift, which required not only policy changes but also uh, technology changes within uh, both the. Uh, the Pentagon and, and outside of the, the, the Pentagon at the, at the base layer as well. And so um, one of the very interesting uh, return on investment of Platform One has been the ability for Platform One to spin up a chat. So we spun up a, an FOUO, a Mattermost chat, uh, so all the teams across DOD can connect and, and collaborate uh, within two days. We had, a, we had the chat up and running 28 hours after uh, the beginning of the crisis. And uh, that demonstrated, one, the, the value of DevSecOps and the ability to accredit software very quickly. Uh, this was not something planned. This was something built uh, based on the 
the issue within 24 hours and accredited it up and running within 28 hours, which is pretty exciting. And that demonstrates the value of the SecOps and the platform and not, not having to reinvent the wheel when it comes to accrediting the whole stack and really focusing on your application layer. And so we were able to spin up that chat and we have 60,000 users um, using it uh, within, I, I would say, two weeks, which was pretty incredible, wow. uh, not using CAC and not using GFE devices, uh, which was also uh, a big enabler for teams that didn't have access to a GFE device or didn't have access to their CAC readers. Um, and so I think what we're gonna be seeing now is um, uh, following the, the big deployment from DoD CIO and the Airflow CIO uh, using uh, Office uh, 365, uh, not using CAC and not using GFE devices as well. Uh, we're going to see this as becoming the norm and uh, providing access to more and more of these services. I think there is a big shift and quite a bit of work that has to be done on the policy side of the cyber uh, side of the house to enable these teams that had temporary waivers uh, to be able to use some of these capabilities today. Uh, so that has yet to be completely uh, described what it, what that means in terms of changes, because we don't know yet if are we going to still be able to use uh, non-CAC authentication or are we not going to be able to do that down the road? So there's still a little bit of uh, gray area there. Uh, but what's exciting is I think we're getting access to all the, the right tools, collaboration tools, chats, video chats, re-enabling a lot of the uh, the thing that used to be disabled on our devices. That does create a cyber risk, so we have to be careful right now going from one extreme to the, to the other. I think there's a middle ground somewhere to balance cyber security and making sure we don't just give away our data and IP. Um, to not being able to move uh, at the pace that, that makes sense for, for the DoD, right? And so yeah. I think it's still something that we have to figure out. But I, I'm pretty excited to see that people have, have changed their mindset and it's going to be, um, you know, kind of the new norm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about, you know, balancing that cyber risk. Sometimes for the average airman out there, sometimes we, you know, this is just difficult to balance that security with ease of use or functionality. How do you approach something like that? Well, I think where I'm lucky is I'm a developer myself, but I'm also a cyber guy. So I kind of have the two hats and I, I play with that a lot because I, I put myself in the shoes of both, both the end user and also the, the the cyber team that has to assess the risk. And it, it's difficult, right? I think obviously they're all two very competing uh, issues. And when you think about it, you know, you could have a very secure system, but if, if you cannot move fast enough and uh, adopt new technologies, new AI machine, machine learning capabilities, you're just gonna get so far behind that in effect, you're creating a cyber risk, right? By not being able to move at the pace of relevance, like we call it, right? right. And so it's it's very interesting. I keep saying a lot to cyber people in DoD that you know you can be as secure as you want, but if you can move fast, you're going to get behind. And if you get behind, you have a cyber risk so true. that's actually bigger than not moving, right? And so that opens some people's eyes when it comes to balancing the ability to move fast and react to change. One of the big things we've done with Platform One with the automation of the containers I was talking about, 
we can update these containers centrally and push them across all classification levels, across all these different DoD programs within minutes. And you can imagine the value of being able to update uh, a piece of software, whether it's a, a, an operating system, whether it's a, a commercial uh, product or open source um, software, all those can be updated within seconds, if not minutes. And, and that gives us the ability to react to events. So if there's a zero day, if there's a, a new vulnerability, we can patch and update the systems across all these environments, across classification levels in, in minutes. And that by definition brings security, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But then people can see that as a risk too, because if someone managed to tamper with those containers, obviously you have a cyber risk there. So mm -hmm. there's a balance, obviously that's tough to find. And I, the key for me is all about speed. If you can react fast and detect issues fast and react fast and you fail fast, but not twice for the same reason, then you're agile. And if you're agile, you can mitigate risk faster that what could be an impediment to you moving fast. Interesting, yeah, that agility is everything. Sir, you, you mentioned open source software. Um, so originally a lot of you know big tech companies saw that as a, as a risk. Um, and now they kind of shifted to a new culture of from completely against it to becoming largest uh, contributors. Do you see the Air Force following uh, this similar culture shift and actively contributing to open source? Absolutely. And in fact, the entire platform one stack and the entire DevSecOps stack is 100% based on open source software. Um, you know, I think there, there was a two different story there. Some companies saw, you know, uh, open source as a, as, a, as a business risk, not so much as a cyber risk. Uh, they, they liked to pretend it was for cyber reasons, but the fact is they were afraid those open source projects were going to, you know, cannibalize their business sales and their revenue, right? And at some point, those projects became so big that there was no denying that they had to participate, which you know was not ideal for some companies because now they had to do a 360, a 180, and now start to participate within these projects to still be uh, relevant. And, and obviously, a lot of companies have done a great job at doing that, that switch. Uh, one of them, you know, Microsoft, is now, like you said, completely embracing uh, the open source uh, community and, and collaborating uh, natively with those, those teams and adding members uh, baked into those teams. We, we've done the same thing. Uh, the entire uh, source code repo of Platform One is open source. Um, it's called Repo One. It's accessible you know, from the internet and anyone can go and see the code and the containers and all the security we're doing because we, we know that by having more eyes on the code, we are more secure, right? It's actually a myth to think that obfuscation can bring any security. In fact, when we've done any pen tests, including the more recent ones organized by uh, Dr. Roper uh, at DEF CON last year, uh, you know, uh, white hat hackers managed to get into a duty system that they had never seen before, mm -hmm. supposedly using, you know, DOD uh, custom software that has never been seen before by those people, and they managed to get complete admin access within four minutes, uh, including sometimes you know dozens of exploits to get in to the same system in diff with different different ways, and so that demonstrated to the world that obfuscation and uh, closed source code doesn't bring any security. At best, 
it brings the 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 faith on trusting that source code when in fact you don't have any evidence that it's not vulnerable to begin with right so it's it's actually uh, counterproductive to to even uh, be hiding it because in effect you're just worried about uh, what what is actually behind that source code if you actually trust it you have no problem open sourcing it and getting feedback right uh, very much like anything in life so we are 100 percent behind the open source community we are contributing back to all the open source projects uh, we are um, using in fact we we have several teams on contract as well to push back uh, fixes based on what we find on open source projects during scanning or, or by using them including new modern uh, DevSecOps products, open source projects. Uh, so that's been uh, quite the, the ride. Where we need to do better is when it comes to civilian and, and military uh, personnel to be able to push back code to open source projects. It's still very difficult to get the, the code released, uh, to be released publicly when it was actually written by the government mm. uh, personnel, even though by definition, um, being written by the government personnel gives you no IP rights. There's still that uh, notion of classification that has to be uh, understood and making sure we're not uh, publishing any code that will have any any kind of national security risk. That's where we, we need to do better. So that's why we use a lot of contractors to do that, that work for us. Hmm, interesting. So, uh, you know, if I th think about Airmen at the kind of the wing level, if we bring it all the way down, even to the squadron, you know, what can airmen in the kind of the cyber communications squadron, what, how can they best support your vision? Well, I think we're going to try to really help them uh, first. And that's by bringing tools that they all are trying to access that often are all blocked at the base layer or blocked uh, due to cyber issues that are often uh, inaccurate. And so we, we want to try to bring uh, an environment on the cloud at uh, different classification levels for these teams to be able to uh, first do their uh, daily uh, work. And that will include um, you know, access to all the different cyber tools and the SecOps tools, uh, including source code repo, uh, scanning tools, uh, planning tools, and we're, we're buying in bulk uh, to help at least the, the software teams out there so they don't have to reinvent and go acquire all these different licenses and provide it as a, as a, as a DevSecOps stack, managed uh, stack with an ATO day one on platform one. We have about already dozens, I would say, of teams consuming what we call the party bus, which is this multi-tenant environment where uh, we are managing it for, for the teams and they can just come and consume. Uh, we're going to make that easier to access uh, with time and, and funding. Right now, it's kind of the pay-per-use model where uh, each each uh, team pays for their license and, and uh, participates in the, the Platform One funding to grow faster together and consolidating uh, and buying licenses in bulk obviously brings the massive uh, discount. Uh, and then once they have access to the environment, because everything is open source, uh, we can have a two-way street with the teams when it comes to uh, maybe having those teams uh, contribute back to the Platform One uh, source code to improve it, add more capabilities, add more features, fix things, 
um, and you know make make sure that the, the cyber uh, side of the house is as documented as it can be uh, to make sure the adoption of these tools are more and more streamlined on the road. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and kind of talk about uh, the Internet of Things, or as most people know them, smart devices. You know, we have our smart lights, our smart um, camera home systems, locks. That's kind of become popular in this whole smart home movement. Now, there's a lot of those devices and sensors that we can actually utilize to provide us with valuable data and insights uh, when integrated within different systems. So how is that something moving forward that we can, you know, provision update, manage, and kind of authorize these types of devices on a larger scale? Yeah, I think you're, you're touching one of the, my next big uh, focus on, on this year. Um, you know, I think th there's two sides of this, right? There's a software piece and the hardware piece. The software piece, I think we, we know and we, we have the ability on the DevSecOps environment to write code uh, for IoT devices. We're supporting 16 programming languages, including the more modern AI machine learning uh, programming languages as well. So we can pretty much do anything when it comes to the software side and making sure the code is going to work on IoT devices as uh, as far as a, a jet, right? So we are running uh, containers and Kubernetes, which is what's running containers um, on F-16 jets, on legacy hardware. And we asked the team to do this in 45 days. And in 45 days, you had ADA, uh, Java, well, what what used to to run C and Ada is now running uh, Java, Python, and Go uh, on the same hardware on the F16 jet, right? So we demonstrated that the the, the abstraction and the ability to run software on on any environment is possible, including on IoT devices or edge devices. The the next uh, tougher uh, piece is honestly a little bit outside of my world which would touch more on the hardware side. And as you know, with uh, uh, hardware, there is obviously tampering and uh, sourcing and a bit of material uh, considerations when it comes to where all the different pieces of the hardware came from. Whether it's a drone, whether it's an IoT device, uh, they are pieces coming from China and other countries, which obviously could be a problem. And so it's been still, uh, I think, the, the number one impediment as far as how can we rapidly assess uh, a piece of soft, a piece of hardware and know for a fact that the hardware can be trusted and can be used in a duty environment. And I, honestly, I don't have the answers yet on that. Uh, there are a, a few pockets of DoD tackling that problem. Unfortunately, it usually comes at a cost of time, which could be you know sometimes a year or two years, which is obviously uh, a non-starter when it comes to innovation around IoT devices. And so unless we have an ability to rapidly assess hardware, and I'm talking about weeks, not months, uh, then I think we're just going to get behind. But at the same time, that's where I would be very cautious to just ignore the risk and put our hand in the sand and just use the hardware without truly understanding the, the risk in terms of the, the cybersecurity piece there on the hardware side. All right. Well, Mr. Shalon, is there anything else you'd like to, to pass along to, to our audience? Well, I think we want to get feedback. So we're, we're launching, a, you're going to see quite soon, quite a few um, websites uh, coming from Dr. Roper's office that are trying to gather uh, feedback in terms of what we can improve, what we can do better. Um, we really want to you know, get to understand better impediments, bottlenecks, um, 
sometimes it's about briefing people on the SecOps and how we accredit software today, uh, which we do a lot. We, we, we probably briefed um, many of the Air Force authorizing officials, but uh, they also have teams. And so if you, if you find bottlenecks, if you have issues with your software accreditation, with using open source software, with uh, using modern programming languages, using modern cyber tools, reach out to, to uh, my office. Uh, we have two websites, uh, well, w one website that's uh, the software.af.mil website, uh, software.af.mil, software.airforce.mil. Uh, that's the, soft the CSO website, and we have uh, Ask Me Anything sessions every uh, two to three weeks where people can join and ask questions live. Uh, to me, and the next one is actually on Friday, uh, but we do that every three weeks and, or two weeks sometimes. And and there's a ton of training content videos. Uh, there's a lot of uh, content created on DevSecOps and Agile and acquisition stuff. And then uh, we are launching uh, an, uh, an idea box where people will be able to drop either complaint or idea uh, anonymously or not. Uh, to give us feedback when it comes to uh, acquisition, DevSecOps, software, cyber, data, AI, machine learning, funding issues uh, when it comes to Dr. Roper's uh, engagements. And so I uh, would love to get more feedback and love to get a community uh, of practice to grow. Uh, we have about 1,500 members in the DevSecOps uh, COP, community of practice. Uh, we also have an email, uh, usaf.cso at mail.mil, uh, so US Air Force, usaf.cso, chief software office at mail.mil. And that's going to be, you know, uh, the place where you can send, you know, any, any question, any, any, uh, concerns or, or if you need help, uh, with any, any software related, uh, problems, whether it's on the cloud, on premise, whether it's open source or not. Uh, that's where we can help you. So really want to be here as a resource and uh, we want to make sure we're not in, living in a vacuum and often being at the Pentagon, this is what happens, right? Sure. So we want to make sure we have direct access. So never hesitate to shoot us an email. Uh, join the Ask Me Anything events. Dr. Roper is doing his Ask Me Anything events every month. Uh, the CSO is doing it every two to three weeks. So you can come and directly ask questions we do not filter questions. We try to answer every question um, as openly as we can. Um, so please uh, join us. All right. That sounds great. Well, uh, uh, Lieutenant Shadashik, thank you so much for joining us today. And Mr. Shalon, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on the Bedrock Podcast.